Welcome to episode 33 of Tandem with the Random, an open format podcast featuring interviews with interesting people doing interesting things. This is your host, Brian Kelly. So what we're looking at is uh, basically 1952 to 1964. That was only 12 years of very significant error in the space race, etc. So five space programs would have used this as well as all the medical research and other uh, aviation research. So did Project Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. But it also did the X-15 program. Guys like Neil Armstrong were X-15 pilots before they were uh, Apollo astronauts. That was Mike McGuire, president of the Johnsville Centrifuge and Science Museum, talking about the Johnsville Centrifuge at Naval Air Development Center, Johnsville. The base, formerly located in Warminster, Pennsylvania, played an important role in training nearly all of the astronauts from the early days of the United States space program. As part of the base's Aviation Medical Acceleration Laboratory, the Johnsville Centrifuge was the world's largest and most powerful human centrifuge. Legends of the U.S. space program, like Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, John Glenn, and Neil Armstrong, as well as many space shuttle and F-15 pilots, all came to this Bucks County community between 1952 and when military operations ceased at the base in 1996. We'll hear more about the fascinating story of NADC Johnsville and its centrifuge in just a bit. But first, I'd like to share a few random thoughts. Well, I would like to start out by apologizing for the extended gap between podcasts. I suddenly became super busy with work, life commitments, and my training for the Broad Street Run, Atlantic City Triathlon, and the Trenton Half Marathon. Oh yeah, there was also a little medical episode I had to deal with too, but I'll get back to that in a moment. First, I want to talk about running in Philadelphia's iconic Broad Street Run this past Sunday. For those unfamiliar with the Broad Street Run, it is the biggest 10-mile race in the United States, with 40,000 runners participating. This was my first Broad Street Run, and my first race longer than a 10K, or 6.2 miles. I only managed to get in two 10-mile runs during my training, but the second one, a couple of weeks ago, went really well and was very encouraging. While my initial goal was to finish in less than 1 hour 40 minutes, I was actually aiming for 135. Based on that recent training run, I thought I could do that without exhausting myself and still leave enough in a tank for a strong finish. I didn't want to be one of those runners walking or struggling to reach the finish line. Well, I didn't get to 135, but I was close. I wound up finishing the Broad Street Run with a personal best 10-mile time of 1 hour 36 minutes 21 seconds. And again, I felt great throughout the entire run. Honestly, I probably could have pushed myself more. I just didn't want to risk having nothing left at the end. As someone relatively new to running, it was fun taking part in a race with 40,000 participants in a city that I love so much. It was an interesting new experience, and I hope to do it again. There are a couple of links to some articles I posted about my Broad Street Run experience in the show notes. While running in and finishing my first Broad Street Run was exciting enough, there was some additional drama earlier last week. I woke up Monday, April 28th, and realized that most of the left side of my body and face was experiencing slight numbness. I went to the doctor later that day, and there was some concern that it may have been stroke-related, because I'm otherwise generally healthy, and there weren't a lot of other possible causes. I was told to get additional tests done and an MRI of my brain and start taking an aspirin a day. While I was advised that it wasn't serious enough to go to the emergency room, I was told to go to the ER immediately if the symptoms worsened. Well, 
The next evening, my right side started feeling numb, so I went to the hospital, where I received a CT scan of my head and underwent other tests and blood work. Everything came back okay, and the doctor on duty didn't think it was caused by a stroke. After spending nearly five hours at the hospital, I went out for additional lab work the following morning and went for a consultation with a neurologist later that afternoon. The neurologist also feels this wasn't a stroke, but I'll need to go back after I have the MRI done this week. Fortunately, my right side numbness dissipated by Wednesday evening, and the left side numbness was barely noticeable by the time the weekend came around, so I ran in the Broad Street Run as planned. Now I just have to get back to training for the Atlantic City Triathlon in September and the Trenton Half Marathon in November. After this short musical break, we'll hear the story of the former Johnsville Centrifuge and Naval Air Development Center in Warminster, Pennsylvania. Stay tuned. Listening to the Tandem with the Random podcast at tandemwiththerandom.com. If you ever find yourself driving on Bristol Road along the border of Warminster and Northampton townships in Lower Bucks County, Pennsylvania, you can see a remarkable piece of U.S. space program history as you drive by. On the outer edge of Warminster Community Park, adjacent to Bristol Road, you will see a tall, narrow, shed-like structure next to two smaller buildings. Nestled amongst these structures is a gray, semi-flattened orb with the words U.S. Navy emblazoned on it, attached to a rusting metal assembly that appears to be wrapped in duct tape in spots. The odd-shaped orb is actually the original gondola once attached to the Aviation Medical Acceleration Laboratory's human centrifuge. The lab was one of about 30 research facilities located at the former Naval Air Development Center Johnsville in Warminster. In fact, the park is on a huge parcel of land that belonged to the center, and the facility's runway is now being used for basketball courts, a dog park, and a playground. The centrifuge itself sits in a building that still exists, not too far away in another section of the former Navy complex. The Johnsville Centrifuge began operations in the early 1950s and was used to study ways to mitigate the G-forces experienced by fighter jet pilots, including Air Force X-15 pilot Neil Armstrong. In August 1959, the seven astronauts selected for NASA's Project Mercury, Scott Carpenter, Donald Deke Slayton, L. Gordon Cooper, Walter Schirra, Alan Shepard, Virgil, Gus Grissom, and John Glenn, collectively known as the Mercury 7, came to Warminster to be subjected to what Glenn called the sadistic and dreaded Johnsville centrifuge, which could go from 0 to 178 miles per hour in 7 seconds and subjected its occupant to up to 40 Gs. And all of these American heroes, legends of the early days of fighter jets and space travel, spent time in this very gondola sitting alongside Bristol Road in Warminster Township, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. As a science, technology, and space exploration enthusiast who has spent considerable amount of time in and around Bucks County since 1998, I was pretty stunned that I didn't know about the importance of NADC Johnsville or the centrifuge until just about two or three years ago. I recently met up with Mike McGuire, president of the Johnsville Centrifuge and Science Museum, 
at the site of the centrifuge's original gondola, which was used from 1952 to 1964, as restoration experts were taking a look at how it could be restored to its former glory. This uh, gondola you see in front of us was finally attached in 1952. They had a little struggle with this because uh, it wasn't available in 1950 because it was advanced composite technology and they really hadn't perfected it. Uh, they needed a very lightweight to, to spin on the end of the arm because the centrifugal force was going to increase the weight, so they had to make this come up with the lightest possible technology they could come up with. So what we're looking at is uh, basically 1952 to 1964, that was only 12 years, of a very significant error in space, uh, the space race, etc. So five space programs would have used this as well as all the medical research and other uh, aviation research. So did Project Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, but it also did the X-15 program. Guys like Neil Armstrong were X-15 pilots before they were uh, Apollo astronauts, and uh, they also did the X-20 program, which never flew, but uh, they did train for it. As Mike said, Neil Armstrong trained in the Johnsville Centrifuge as part of the Air Force X-15 program. So the fact that he once inhabited this gondola is impressive enough. Then Mike bandied off the names of other astronauts and missions that used this particular gondola. How about Project Mercury? We have uh, the first guy in space, the first American in space, I should say, uh, Alan Shepard. So he was in this not uh, two weeks before he went up. He still came here just very shortly before for some last checkout rides. And uh, Gus Grissom was next, and then they moved over to the Atlas so they could begin orbital flights. So, and I should mention, uh, though the astronauts would prefer I don't, but the uh, monkey Ham would have gone up before Shepard, and he trained in this. And the monkey Enos would have been in this before Glenn went up. So then Glenn, followed by uh, Scott Carpenter, Wally Sherrod, and the last one was Gordon Cooper. That made up the Mercury. There was a seventh astronaut, Deke Slayton, when he rode this machine. His, he had a uh, heart arrhythmia, uh, and they grounded him. He did not fly for many years. Actually, he finally restored uh, his ability to go into space, and he did make the Apollo-Soyuz joint mission. So he did get to eventually fly, but he did not fly in Mercury. And then, of course, they added a new class of astronauts, and guys like Armstrong and others joined, and they also came and began training. Project Gemini uh, was 10 missions. Actually, believe it or not, Apollo was designed prior to, Mer to Gemini, so the Apollo work was actually being done simultaneous with that and uh, trying to training guys. And the reason they uh, replaced this, uh, it was Project Apollo. This capsule can only hold one person, and they wanted all three astronauts to be in it at the same time. So they uh, eventually replaced this in 1964 and brought the larger capsule into play, larger gondola into use, and added some more features to the machine at that point to give it more capability. You would think such a piece of U.S. space program history would be preserved. And the gondola was sent to the Smithsonian after it was replaced in 1964. But apparently, the Smithsonian didn't really want it. Yeah, the gondola, it's, it's kind of interesting because it was removed so long ago that the, the people who associated with it long ago had forgotten what happened to it. So there was a great assumption. One person thought it went to a scrapyard and that was the end of it. So we literally did not uh, know where to look or even know how to look for what could possibly have happened to it. But interestingly, early on, one of the volunteers who joined us, his name was Greg Kennedy, and he's currently associated with uh, NASTAR, and uh, he happened to have seen it. He worked at the Smithsonian many years ago, and he recalled seeing it in storage there. So 
that led us to begin searching the uh, records of the Smithsonian. We looked online. They do have an online repository, and there was no record of it there. But uh, through a second volunteer we did, who also had a connection with the Smithsonian, we were able to get a phone number of someone and called, and they confirmed, oh, sure, it's still here. So at least it told us it existed, it was somewhere, but it certainly was in the possession of the Smithsonian and now how to gain control of it, because the Smithsonian does not give anything away. They own it, and they will occasionally work out a loan arrangement, but very strict rules. So by some miracle, they said, you know what, it does belong in Mormonster, it was there, we have no plans to display it, we're going to give it to you. They actually gave it to us, transferred ownership to us, along with some other items that were... Uh, associated with it, so it really was fabulous to have it. So we organized, uh, it was good timing, that was uh, April three years ago, and uh, conveniently in 2011, uh, that marked 50 years since Alan Shepard went up into space, and since he was in this only two weeks prior, we thought, what a great thing to bring this up on the actual anniversary of his mission, of nice 50-year celebration for us. So. Uh, we had, that took two days. It's a wide load. It had to be escorted up the highway, and it was quite a, quite a feat I mean, for our little organization like ours. Many thanks to the History Channel, Comcast, and others who helped us do that. Uh, it weighs 10,000 pounds, so we had to get a big crane on that end, uh, put it on a truck, uh, and again, it had to be escorted up. We brought it about halfway up, stopped overnight in Maryland and continued the journey the following morning. Other people have this clear channel, for example, controls all the billboards along I-95. They very graciously that day turned them over and had a tribute to Alan Shepard posted. So as this thing's coming up through the city of Philly, all the billboards were switched over, so it was neat. And then we got to Bucks County, stopped at the visitor center and had a nice welcoming ceremony with representatives of the congressman's office were there and others. We had some nice speech making. And then from that point, we had the fire trucks and the sirens. We brought it all the way up the street road, had made a lot of noise and brought it here, had a crane waiting here to unload it. So it was quite a, uh, a neat thing. Yeah, you know, it was a, quite a thing to put it together. We're very proud of our organization, as small as tiny group as we are. We were able to piece all that together and it's an expensive move but and here we are looking at it and uh, how these people today are going to give us some advice on how to restore it and conserve it and we hope to get uh, what can be repainted repainted and uh, make it look nice again and get a pavilion built for it hopefully we'll have some uh, generous people help us uh, raise the money to do that before we go any further into what became of the johnsville centrifuge Let's take a few minutes to learn about the history, evolution, and eventual demise of Naval Air Development Center Johnsville, because that's a rather interesting story, too. Historically, it didn't start out in Navy hands. It was actually a private company. The Brewster Aircraft Company initially uh, began acquiring land in 1939, and in 1941, in March, the, they broke ground here to build the plant that's over on Jacksonville Road and actually put a runway in here as well. So and the idea was they were going to build uh, a dive bomber here, the Buccaneer dive bomber. And uh, they broke ground in March of 41, but unfortunately Pearl Harbor intervened in December, and uh, they were not able to deliver the war. They basically, every other manufacturer was scarfing up all the available parts, engines, things like that. And because their funding was all government, the government had actually paid for this land and paid for the construction of the plant. The Navy seized the operation, 
And uh, for a few years in the early war, it kind of was still Brewster Company here, but with Navy oversight. And then by 1944, Brewster went to Fongton, and Navy took total control. And uh, the war ended here. They owned, at that time, about 400 acres. And they began to, uh, what was left of the production work became their early research work of pilotless aircraft, which today we know. We see these drones and cruise missiles. They did weapons research for aircraft, missiles and guns for wet aircraft. And they also were into electronics. They had an electronics lab. And in that era, it would have been radar, brand new invention, radar, sonars, that sort of thing, communications equipment. So and that would eventually morph into a whole bunch of labs of all different branches of technology. And over the years, in the 50s and 60s, they would bring other labs here. And of course, one of those labs was the Aviation Medical Acceleration Laboratory and its centrifuge. The Naval Air Development Center officially closed in 1996, but research there, including centrifuge operations, continued into the 21st century. When the base closed, the control was transferred to a county uh, entity that was created, the, uh, uh, the Bucks County Federal Land Reuse Authority. So they managed the land until the BRAC Commission was finished with the decision to dispose of the property. And after that, the property was parceled out, sold off, or transferred, and then the county uh, stopped managing it. But during that time, the county did lease the building. So yes, uh, there was some research projects from time to time that they would uh, use the machine for. And that continued, oh, I guess until it was sold to the last owner, and then uh, it was somewhat dismantled. So at this point, it would not be able to function anymore. But Yes, it was certainly in use up until pretty recently. So what happened to the centrifuge itself? As I mentioned earlier, it's in a building that still exists on the former NADC site. But what is it being used for? Our biggest customer is uh, mitzvahs. We, we yeah. cook more bar and bat mitzvahs than anything else. That's Sam Crevero, owner of 780 Falcon Circle in Warminster, Pennsylvania, home of several business tenants, a recording studio, and yes the former Johnsville Centrifuge, which is now an events venue known as the Fuge. We're taking over the, the prom industry. Um, <laughs> last year we had one prom. This year we have five proms. Next year we already have eight booked. Um, so it's growing rapidly with the prom. Because it has a cool factor of the lighting, mm -hmm. which um, the kids can relate to with, with our sound and light package, the projectors, it has the historic side for the adults of the, the history of everything here. Um, it has a grandness in the room that the event planners can do just about anything in here. Um, it really it creates for a, a great, unique event in the room. Um, your event can be totally different from the night before's event, last week's event, or anybody else in their family's event that, that they've been going to the same country club over and over. It gives them the opportunity to do something completely different and unique from everybody else. But how did Sam wind up as the owner of a building housing an historic centrifuge? In 07, I was looking for a office space for my security company. Uh, I had a few extra dollars. We had some good years doing security, so I thought maybe I could buy something a little bit bigger and rent it out as office space. <laughs> so when I looked at this building for the first time, it wasn't advertised as the centrifuge. It was advertised as office space. So when I came here to look at it, I was looking at office space, and I saw that it was a very large building with a lot of office space, but it, it wasn't adding up as I, was, as I was walking around the first and second floor it, until they opened up the door to the centrifuge room, and I saw that that was taking up two floors of the, the building. 
And uh, from that point on, I, I, I knew I had to have this building. I, I did my research at night. I was online every night Googling Johnsville Centrifuge. It's funny, I was 20 pages in on a Google search, and I'm still finding information about the Johnsville Centrifuge. Um, so I got a good history lesson before I closed on the building. I knew exactly what I was buying. And then I spent the first three months of owning the building. Instead of working, I spent time doing tours to all my friends and people who uh, want to come in and see this place. So Sam now owned a centrifuge. The question was what to do with it. The idea to turn it into an events venue came during a Philadelphia Flyers playoff hockey game a few years ago. It started off... Um, one evening in, um, was it 09 or 10, I forget when now, the Flyers were in the playoffs. So I decided to put some drywall on the wall up there, and with this cheesy little projector I had, to watch the Flyers game in there with uh, my, my two brothers and some friends. And they won that night, but this screen is the same size as it is now, but it wasn't taped and spackled or anything. It was just this huge screen with this cheap projector with all the lights turned off, but it was a wow. It was, like, so big and cool. They won that night, and then we, we, we had so much fun, we decided to invite some more people. So the next, the next game, we had, like, 30 people there. And then from that point, I said, we could have some really cool parties here. So here we are today having some really cool parties. Started off with a Flyers game. Amazingly, a lot of equipment and items from the operational days of the Johnsville Centrifuge can still be found in the building. Well, the, uh, the original uh, centrifuge is here. Um, in in 64, they, re, they redid the arm of the centrifuge to make it into a dynamic flight simulator. Before that, it was just a G-force machine. So the, the original motor, all the components um, of the original centrifuge, most of them are here. Um, anything that they updated in the 60s was, re, was uh, replaced some older stuff, so now it's that stuff that is here. Um, so when I purchased the building, the centrifuge was in place, the control rooms are in place. Uh, I pretty much kept everything original. There are certain rooms that I never even touched. Everything is original in the rooms. So are people absolutely floored when they arrive for an event at the Fuge to see an actual centrifuge upon entering the main room? Surprisingly, that's apparently not the case. Well, when we have an event, most people will send out invites and, and link our website to it. Um, and when we have fundraisers, they, they link our website. So when the guests come in, they, they've done their homework. They're telling me what happened here. Um, we open up some of the um, control rooms for, um, for, the, for the events to tour in, and I always have a handful of people walking around explaining to other guests what happened here because they researched it online. So a lot of people know about it before they come in, only because they, they had just gotten the invite and did their homework before they came in. Because when, when you hear the Fuge, we're, we're so new, people don't know about it. They're like, what the heck is the Fuge? So they're, they're power of the Internet. They're, they're researching before they come out. So people seem to be fascinated by the story of the Johnsville centrifuge and the role it played in preparing U.S. astronauts for space travel. And it's the mission of the Johnsville Centrifuge and Science Museum to keep that legacy alive for future generations. Here again is Mike McGuire. Well, our group was formed five years ago as a nonprofit corporation, so we're a 501c3, fully tax-deductible. And uh, we have a, a very dedicated group of volunteers, and we work hard, and nobody's paid. And uh, we do stuff like bring artifacts up and uh, 
We go out to schools and scout groups and offer uh, science lessons. So we have basically two missions. One is to preserve the history of the base through artifacts and documents and things like that. And the other thing is to have a science museum so we can take the technology and engineering of the base and kind of translate that into science and engineering for the kids so they can uh, be inspired maybe to take up those same kinds of careers. So that's where we spend our time and effort. Programming is growing, in fact, growing rapidly. Uh, we'll be uh, working with one school last year, five this year, 14 already signed up next year. So we, we see rapid growth in the STEM education field. As far as preservation, this adjacent parcel of land, we're negotiating with Warminster Township uh, for about a two-acre parcel here, and that will give us a place we can put an exhibition building up and allow the public to come see uh, things like the restored gondola, which we hope to place there in a pavilion, and as well as a lot of our other facts that, you know, that we have in storage. We do uh, get them out and rotate them through temporary exhibits at other venues around the area, but uh, it would be nice to permanently have them in one home. So that's the goal. To get uh, That's our next step, to get uh, a permanent footing somewhere where we can uh, get a place people can come see us and visit us on a daily basis. One of the museum's big fundraisers is its annual gala, and this year's event is taking place this Saturday, May 10th. We raise money in a variety of means. Our biggest is... Uh, our annual gala, our annual dinner, which is May 10th, and we have uh, a great speaker this year. It's uh, the last shuttle commander, the very last astronaut that uh, has flown in space on a, an American vehicle. That would be uh, Chris Ferguson, a uh, great guy, and uh, you know people should come out and see him. He has a nice story to tell. And conveniently, he was a Navy pilot. He rode the uh, Johnsville centrifuge while he was a Navy wow. pilot. And in fact, the very last year the base was open, he wrote it in 1996. Well, that does it for this episode of Tandem with the Random. I have to say this was easily the most work I've put into one of these episodes. But it was also the most fun I've had since I started this podcast. Thanks to Mike McGuire of the Johnsville Centrifuge and Science Museum and Sam Crevero, owner of The Fuge, for talking to me about the Johnsville Centrifuge and the Naval Air Development Center. As always, be sure to check the show notes for this episode for links to more information about anything discussed during this podcast. And remember, to stay up to date with the podcast, please keep an eye on tandemwiththerandom.com, follow us on Twitter at TWTR Podcast, like Tandem with the Random on Facebook, or join Tandem with the Random's Google Plus Circle for the latest information and show updates. Until next time, this is Brian Kelly. Take care. and views expressed by the host of Tandem with the Random are not necessarily shared by guests of the program. Conversely, 
the thoughts and views expressed by guests of the podcast, are not necessarily shared by the host. For more information and show notes for the podcast you have just heard, please visit Tandem with the Random on the web at tandemwiththerandom.com.